Thank you, Dan. Go ahead and make your way to the book of Jonah, if you're not there already. Jonah chapter 3. If you're not exactly where the book of Jonah is, uh, you can kind of look up here, and it's probably about, oh boy, it's near the New Testament. So if you're familiar with where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, you just put it in reverse, and uh, you'll happen upon Jonah shortly thereafter. Uh, Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. Uh, Jonah chapter 3, and as Dan has mentioned, uh, next Sunday we have a special opportunity to hear some testimonies from uh, some who have uh, traveled abroad and others who have simply traveled across the street uh, to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And that will be a, a fun Sunday for us. Then we'll have the camp out. And then on that uh, week following uh, the camp out, we will be back here in Jonah chapter 4. So it just kind of gives you a little bit of a timeline as far as uh, our study here in the book of Jonah. And once we conclude the book of Jonah at the end of October, Lord willing, we'll actually then keep going into the book of Micah. And so I encourage you, be studying and meditating on these books as we, uh, as we study them together then as a church body. So hopefully by now you've found uh, Jonah chapter 3, and if you haven't found it, you're more than welcome to use that table of contents there in your Bible. But I hope you've got that Bible open. I'm going to read uh, beginning here in verse 1, and we will, I will read all of chapter 3. It's recorded for us that then the word of the Lord came to Jonah... A second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Well, this week, Encounter Church, I received in the mail from the Louisville Water Company a final notice. How many of you have ever received a letter that looks something like this? Can I get a witness? Anyone else? Okay, good. I am not the only one. How about LG&E, right? Maybe from LG&E or your, your service provider. Yeah, I received in the mail a final notice, and it tells me your Louisville water account balance is past due. 
To avoid water service disconnection, you must pay your total outstanding balance by September 21st. And if your service is disconnected due to non-payment, you will be charged a 45 disconnection fee and you may also be subject to a $100 deposit fee. So I received in the mail a final notice. Now this, I hate to admit it, is not my first final notice that I've ever received. I just find life is a lot more enjoyable when you get these things in the mail. You know, it kind of heightens the experience. It's just like driving with an expired tag or uh, driving with, with the, the fuel tank on E. I mean, it just makes life more exciting. Marin would not agree with that, but at least that's what I like to say. But I received in the mail, and I'm thankful I'm genuinely thankful that the water company sent me a final notice because they were warning me. They were giving me a heads up. They didn't just show up on my property and, you know, turn off my water. They actually, they, they actually gave me the, the gracious attempt to, to make this right. And so they said, here's a final notice. I, I had... I've, really, I've got two options, right? Because I'm clearly in the wrong. Uh, this stems from filling up the pool from all of the times that kids came over for, for slip and slides and from watering my vegetables, right? I've got an excess use of water over the summer months. And so I'm clearly in the wrong. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. So I have two options, right? I owe a debt. My two options are either pay the bill or get the water shut off, right? There's no middle ground. Right? The water company has issued me a warning. This isn't the first warning. And so in order to receive the flow of water in the future, I have to agree to, to turn from my wicked ways of, of being a delinquent in payment. And so that's what I did. I called them and I paid the bill. And thankfully for you all, I was able to take a shower this morning. Well, this morning we are rejoining our study of the book of Jonah here in chapter 3. And what do we find? We find Jonah is now going throughout the streets of Nineveh and he's shouting out a warning to the people. Right? The message that Jonah declares, he, he tells them God gives Jonah this instruction. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. And so what, Jonah, what does Jonah do? He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's giving them the warning, the advance notice. He's giving them the final notice, essentially is what he's doing. And the message that Jonah declared Scripture records for us, it spread like a viral social media post. For from one mouth to the next, they were telling each other, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. If, if we don't cry out for mercy, if we don't get things straightened up, judgment is coming. God is going to, he's going to shut us off. Judgment is coming throughout the land. So the question then, again, if you've never read this, and I was just doing these introductory remarks, your question, your natural question is, how are they going to respond to this message? Right? How are they going to respond to, to Jonah's message? Well, this morning's sermon, we are dealing with a topic that many of us struggle to put into practice. And it's this topic, it's this activity of repentance, 
right? The real miracle, oftentimes when we think about the book of Jonah, we think about the, the great fish swallowing Jonah and three days later vomiting out him out on dry land. We look at that and we think, boy, that is what a miraculous event that was. What a supernatural event. But here in chapter 3, I think probably the greater miracle than even a great fish swallowing Jonah, the greater miracle is that this great city comes to their knees in repentance, right? That, that this great city, as the Bible records for us, they turn from their wicked ways. They turn from their violence. They turn the way, from the ways in which they're mistreating other people, and they turn in repentance. I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, repentance is hard, right? I, whether it's repenting, it, because what is it? It's, it's an acknowledging that I am wrong, that I'm in the wrong, whether that's before God or whether that's before other people. I think sometimes it's harder to acknowledge my sin toward other people than even it is toward God. But repentance is the topic of our study this morning that we're uncovering here from Jonah chapter 3. The big idea is this. The main point I want you to leave from this morning is that we can be hopeful in repentance. That repentance does not have to be hard. That repentance does not have to be something that we hesitate toward, but instead we are hopeful in repentance because of God's great mercy toward sinners. Because of God's great mercy toward sinners. I've got uh, several observations. In, in fact, if you're keeping track, I've got five different points this morning. I'll call them more or less observations of various roles and results within the activity of repentance. What do we learn about repentance here from chapter 3? What do we learn from it that shows us uh, the, the Ninevites' repentance, but also uh, how do we apply this to our lives today? How does this help encourage us in our own walk with Jesus? And the first one is this. I think in this we see that the role of God's word in repentance. We see that God's word has a significant role in calling men and women to repentance. It has a significant role even in our daily activity of examining our own hearts and turning away from our sin. In fact, in verses 1 through 9, go ahead and look there. And maybe you want to, if, if you mark in your Bibles, you might even underline some of, these, uh, some of these words. But in verses 1 through 9, we see the role of God's word in bringing repentance to the people of Nineveh and even the king himself. And so let's look, let's follow the thread of, of the theme of God's word here through the first several verses of this book. There in verse 1, what do we see? We see that it's recorded for us that then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Then the word of the Lord, it came to Jonah a second time. So chapter 3, again, it mirrors the beginning in many ways of chapter 1. But again, we have that the word of the Lord is setting the tone. And then in verse 2, God is giving Jonah this instruction. He tells Jonah, he says, proclaim to it, proclaim to the city of Nineveh, what? The message I give you. What's the message? Well, the message is God's word, right? The word of the Lord that came to Jonah is the word of the Lord that Jonah is to proclaim to the city of Nineveh. And then look there at verse 3. Again, we kind of see this theme of, of the word of God. We see Jonah obeyed what? He obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. 
Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Then we look at verse 4. We see it says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and he's proclaiming. What is Jonah proclaiming? Jonah's proclaiming God's word. He's proclaiming the word of the Lord that, would, that came to him there in verse 1. And so it continues. And then we see there in verse 5, it says the Ninevites believed God. Well, why did the Ninevites believe God? Because they heard the word of the Lord from Jonah. They believed God because now someone had come and, and shared with them God's word. I heard a number of years ago by a gentleman by the name of Robbie Gallaty, he said that the gospel comes to us on its way to someone else. That the gospel, that God's word comes to us on its way to someone else. In other words, that, that God's word is not just simply to stop with us, but instead God's word should continue through our conversations that we have with other people. And we see this here is that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and Jonah then goes into the city of Nineveh, and he declares the word of the Lord. The Ninevites believe God, and then we jump then to verse 6. It says, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh. Well, what was Jonah's warning? It was God's word. It was God's word, right? Some versions, uh, maybe the translation that's there in your lap right now, have that when the word reached the king of Nineveh, that same word that was proclaimed to Jonah there in verse 1, is carried out and is proclaimed throughout the city streets, and that word eventually makes its way to the king of Nineveh. You see, God uses his word to soften hard and sinful hearts. What we see in this, in this account, we see hearts that are filled with wickedness and violence, and they are brought to their knees in repentance. I, church, I don't think we can overemphasize just how wicked and violent the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians as a whole, we, we cannot overemphasize just how wicked and, and violent uh, this, this, these people are and how they treated other people, they, uh, just like the Assyrian army and, and their kings, they, they would go about boasting about their cruelty to enemy nations, to nations that they would go and conquer and, and bring in. They would decapitate their enemies. They would build decorative pyramids with their deca the decapitated heads around the city. They would sometimes skin their enemies alive and they would hang the skins of their enemies there on their city walls as a, as a means of psychological warfare. They would, they would have mass executions by impaling enemy soldiers. They would cut off limbs, they would gouge out eyes, and they would leave these vi victims to, alive to roam about the city streets, reminding the people, putting fear in them. So I don't think we can overemphasize just how wicked these people are, these Ninevites are. But God uses His Word to soften their hearts. What happens when Jonah proclaims God's Word of warning and mercy to them? They repent. We learn that the pathway to repentance begins by hearing God's Word. The pathway to repentance begins by hearing God's word. 
Right? God even proclaimed through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? Is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock, that breaks the heart into pieces? Right? My, my children and I the other day, uh, we were watching a YouTube channel. I forget exactly. What channel, Thatcher, is it that, we, that had the big hammer? Oh, how ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. It's a waste of time that you wish you could get back. But we were doing it as a family. So it was family time. But they had built this like this 3,000 pound hammer. Okay, this huge hammer. And, and, they're, and they're letting, I mean, this thing is probably 25 feet tall, right? With this big old hammer head. Bruce, I thought of you. I thought, man, how can Bruce make something like this? This would be incredible. But they were taking this and they were taking all of these things that they were letting this 3,000 pound hammer fall down on and smash, you know? Like they start off with like um, uh, shaving cream cans, right? And, and they'd smash it and the shaving cream would splatter everywhere. And then they eventually moved up to like glass blocks and, and tires. And then they brought in like titanium blocks, you know, will it smash it or not? And, and uh, I was reminded as I'm, as I'm watching this show and as I'm preparing this sermon, as I'm reminded of what Jeremiah tells us, that God's word is like a hammer that has the capacity, has the ability to break even the hardest of hearts. Church, I wonder, have we lost faith in God's Word? Have we forgotten the power of God's Word? So much so, when a friend comes to us needing counsel, what do we offer them? We offer to them our opinion, rather than taking to them to God's Word. And opening up God's word and helping them to see the answers for their lives and their struggles right here in God's word. Ultimately then pointing them to Jesus Christ. We should be, we should be encouraged in the power of God's word to bring even the hardest of hearts to a point of repentance. We need to ask God to teach our own hearts, don't we? Right? Not only, right, in your mind, it's easy to think of that person who has a hard heart, who you think would never turn to the Lord, but even in our own lives, we need to ask the Lord to daily be breaking our own hearts in those areas where we have become hardened toward Him, or maybe those areas of our lives that have become callous toward the Lord because of our sin, Right? We need God's word every day to reveal to us those hidden areas of our hearts so that each of us will come to the Lord and repent and will turn away from our sin. And so here in chapter 3, we witness the power of God's word to change hearts, to bring an entire city, an entire powerful, evil, wicked, violent city brings it to its knees, knees and repentance, ultimately then leading them to revival. Right? Well, then a logical question then, okay, is, is how does God's word make its way to the people? Which then leads us to our next point, is the role of the messenger in repentance. The role of the messenger in repentance. Given this second opportunity, Jonah now has obeyed the Lord and he has traveled to Nineveh in order to fulfill his role as a prophet. Now, I don't know about you, as you read this, and even as you get into chapter 4, 
kind of as you understand the entire book of Jonah, you still sense, even here in chapter 3, that there is a reluctance in Jonah's obedience. Right? Jonah's hatred, we're going to learn in Jonah chapter 4, that Jonah has a hatred toward these people of Nineveh. That's why he didn't want to go, is because he was, he, Jonah was confident that God would be merciful for them, and they didn't, he didn't want them to receive God's mercy. And so he said, I'm not going to take the message to them. But here we see in chapter 3, Jonah does, even in a bit of reluctant obedience, Jonah does travel to Nineveh. Now, I don't want us to be too hard on Jonah. Because sometimes we kind of scoff a little bit and we say, oh, can you believe that, Jonah? Right? What a loser. I mean, you know, he, he, he can't even go to Nineveh. To, to tell these people about Jesus or to tell them about God's mercy, ultimately then pointing to Jesus, right? They'll get there. Right? Sometimes we, we kind of give them a hard time, but we forget this. We forget how far Jonah traveled to get to Nineveh. Let's just assume that this great fish, okay? Let's assume that the great fish vomits Jonah back out onto dry land close to Joppa close to the port of Joppa where he first set sail for Tarshish. Let's just assume that, the, that God and his sovereignty was kind enough to put Jonah back out on dry land in some place that may have been familiar. Well, I, I thought, okay, so how far is it from Joppa, assuming that this, that's where the whale spit him out, how far did Jonah go, even in reluctant obedience, how far did Jonah travel from Joppa to Nineveh? So, in this type of situation, what does every uh, wonderfully trained um, uh, pastor, preacher do, right? When he has a question like this, what does he do? Does he, does he turn to a, another pastor and say, do you happen to know how long far it is? No, what do you do? You go to Google, right? So I typed in. I said, how far from Joppa to Nineveh? And I quickly learned that there's actually a Joppa, Illinois, and a Nineveh, Indiana. Indiana. And, and I quickly learned that, oh, it's only four hours and 44 minutes driving time on I-69 from Joppa to Nineveh. That caught me off guard a little bit. That, that trip is only 272 miles, all right, by car. Jonah's trip, however, to Nineveh was much more rugged and risky, right? On that Joppa to Nineveh, you can have the safety of your car, you can have your Spotify playing, you can have the air conditioner blowing. But for, for Jonah, his trip was... Rugged and risky, it required him to walk over 600 miles. 600 miles throughout a dangerous wilderness, facing the elements of nature, risking the prospect of encountering thieves or bandits, even risking uh, encountering uh, soldiers from Assyria who are trying to uh, keep an eye out for any enemies that might be trying to, to come and attack them, right? So this trip was no, e it was no easy Sunday afternoon drive. And so, albeit, Jonah exhibited, yes, we, we see that there is this reluctant obedience, it seems, that Jonah has, but at least he was obedient. He was obedient to the tune of over 600 miles, a trip that would have probably taken, two, taken him at least two or three weeks. So I think maybe it's time for us to stop being so hard on Jonah, even in his reluctant obedience, because sadly for many of us, we're unwilling to even obey the Lord in walking across the cul-de-sac to tell our neighbors about Jesus. 
we're, we're, we're unwilling to even walk across the room or across the office or to schedule that appointment over a cup of coffee to, to warn, to issue a warning to those whom we, like we won't even do that for the people we love, let alone our enemies, those we hate. So I wonder, who are you withholding the good news of salvation from because of your disobedience? All right, the best way for us to truly love our neighbors is to point them to and to tell them about Jesus. And yet many of us, we're worse than Jonah, unwilling to obey the Lord's command to us toward those whom we interact with and see each and every day. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.12 that we are ambassadors for Christ Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Him, you are His ambassador. And Paul says that, that our task is, to, is that God is making His appeal through you and me, through our conversations. And so Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ Jesus. This is our message to them, is that, that we encourage you, we beg of you, to be reconciled to God. It's our responsibility, church, to make God's truth, His word, as clear as possible to those who will listen, to be faithful to the task. And I thought about this. I think sometimes we hesitate on being a messenger of this good news because we fear what we don't know about the Bible. I think that's one of those excuses maybe last week or so we, I, I touched on a little bit, right? We were afraid that maybe they would ask us a question that I don't know the answer to. And so what happens is because of our fear or because of our insecurity of, of what we don't know about Scripture, because of that, we, we fail to tell people what we do know. I just want to encourage you, church. Yes, we should be growing in our knowledge of God's Word. Yes, we should be growing in knowledge of, of the, in, in our understanding of the truths of Scripture and who God is and His love for us, but don't wait until you feel like you have a seminary degree to tell your neighbor about Jesus. Don't allow what you don't know to stop you from telling what you do know about the Lord. Because each of us in here, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have believed in Him, at some point in time, someone allowed the gospel to flow through them to your ears, and they brought God's truth to your ears, and it, it softened your hard heart, and you, like the people of Nineveh, you believed, and you turned. And God has called us to do the same. So there's a role of the messenger. So ultimately we see God's word bringing the truth to us and there's a messenger through which God's word is working. And this then leads us to an, a, a third observation, a, a bit of a third um, consideration regarding repentance here. I think we should uh, consider the role of circumstances in the Ninevites' repentance. Now, we don't see this directly from Scripture here. Okay, Jonah does not give us all of the historical record of what has happened leading up to this, this Ninevite revival. 
Okay, so Jonah doesn't have a lot of extra historical record. He's recording what God has done here in the midst of declaring this warning, this final notice. But historians, one commentator writes that historians have pointed out that about the time of Jonah's mission, Assyria had experienced a series of famines, plagues, revolts, and even solar eclipses. And if you can imagine in that day and age, right, they didn't have all these massive telescopes like we do, right? If you saw an eclipse, you would wonder, what is going on? And so up to that point, historically, the circumstances surrounding Assyria, again, they experienced famines and plagues, revolts, and solar eclipses, all of which were seen, the Assyrians would have seen those events as omens of far worse things to come. And so some have argued that maybe God also was preparing the ground for Jonah to come and plant God's word, to come and scatter the seed, to come and issue this warning to the people that this state of affairs very well would have made rulers and the people of Assyria unusually attuned to the message of a visiting prophet which might help explain. Again, I, I, I don't know. I mean, believe me, God's Word can take care of this on its own, right? It doesn't need the circumstances, but it does seem, it very well could be the case that maybe God is using circumstances in the lives of these people there of Nineveh to, to begin preparing the soil. In the book of Isaiah, God declares, as we think about how God does orchestrate circumstances in our lives, that in the book of Isaiah, God declares, he says, remember this, keep in mind, take to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago, God says this, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times. What is still to come, I say, and what does God say? My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. I mention this, I mention that verse there from Isaiah, because we need to remember that God is sovereign over the circumstances of life, and that God is in control of what is happening. And all of this has a purpose in God's plan, in God's eternal plan. And so the point I'm making is that God can and will orchestrate circumstances as a means of softening and preparing a person's heart to receive even a message of judgment like this. Like the message of judgment, like this message of judgment which Jonah is bringing to the city of of Nineveh, that God has used circumstances to soften their hearts so that they would repent and that they would cry out to God for mercy. Church, I just want to encourage you that we have no idea how God might be orchestrating circumstances in the lives of other people to prepare them to hear the word of the Lord. God very well could be using cancer. God very well could be using a tragedy. God very well could be using an unexpected job loss as a way of preparing a person's heart to hear the gospel. 
And we should find ourselves praying to the Lord. I, I, think, I even think of some of you, I'm looking around the room, making eye contact with some of you, understanding that some of you have, have, you have loved ones who are going through difficult times. And oftentimes, our, our, our first prayer is, God, remove them from this time of difficulty. But what if during that circumstance, what if in the midst of that great difficulty, God is doing His greatest work in their heart? So I wonder, maybe... If our prayer should be, Father, use this struggle or heartache in their life to bring them to a point of repentance. Lord, let this storm or trial that they are going through, may it serve your purpose of drawing my friend or my family member to yourself. And it could even be you. Maybe you're sitting here. And maybe you've been going through a difficult season of life. Maybe God is using these circumstances to soften your heart, to draw your heart into a greater and deeper relationship with Him. How are you going to respond to this circumstance? Right, Charles Spurgeon, I think he, he said, the same sun that, that hardens the clay melts the wax. Or maybe it was melts the wax, hardens the clay. In other words, how are you responding to this circumstances? Are you responding and allowing God to soften your heart toward Him? Or are you becoming embittered toward the Lord in this circumstance? So it very well could be that God, again, historically speaking, it very well could be that God has orchestrated circumstances to present Jonah with fertile ground. I'm so thankful that in 2 Peter 3.9 we're told that the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. Instead, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you hear God's heart in that? That God's desire is that your neighbors, is that your family members, would come to repentance and that he's using these events in their hearts to bring about his perfect and sovereign will and his plan. And so you kind of put it in reverse with, with our points up to this point, circumstances. So you put it in reverse. Okay, if God's using, if they're in these circumstances, will I as a messenger be faithful with what? With the message God has given me, with the gospel. So we see how Boy, what a privilege God gives us to speak these final notices, these words of warning, these words of God's grace and mercy in the lives of other people to bring them into this repentance. And so now we, we shift gears just a little bit, and now what, what do we see? We see uh, that the people of Nineveh, what have they done, right? When uh, Jonah's warning, it, it spread around like a social media post, like I mentioned there in verse 5, it says, the Ninevites believed God. They believed. They believed in this word that Jonah had brought to them. And they understood their need to turn away from their wickedness and their violence and turn and receive the mercy of God. And so the result of this is sorrow. They experience sorrow in their repentance. Look there. Let's go ahead and just follow along with me as I read verses 5 through 8. It says, The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, what did they do? They put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in dust. 
And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. He said, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let, an- let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. The sackcloth and the dust and the fasting, all of these are displays of sorrow and mourning. Did you notice that even the livestock were to participate in the display of sorrow? Did you catch that? Right? Charles, made this, uh, Charles Lindner made this comment on this past Wednesday night at our encounter group. He's like, I can't imagine trying to wrestle a sheep and trying to get it to wear a sackcloth. Right? Could you imagine that? I mean, the herds, for me, for my wife, my wife made, made this observation because she's very familiar with it. Like when our sheep that we have at our house, when our sheep get hungry or when they're out of water, they let me know about it. And they let me know about it because they're the ones, they, they, I, our kids can walk, wander around and they, they're not as noisy. But man, when I step out the door and if they're hungry or if they're thirsty, there is, they are baying until the cows come home or the sheep come home. They are baying all over the place. So imagine, think about this, right? The king says, not only are we not going to eat or drink, but we're going to withhold food from the livestock. Can you just imagine what the sound must have been like throughout the city of Nineveh for these several days of fasting? One commentator suggests that the people of Nineveh became truly sorry for what had happened. They, they mourned because they did not know the blessing of the presence of God with them. And they longed for a change of lifestyle and the opportunity to demonstrate that they were earnest about it as they, as they gave up their evil ways and their violence. You see, we, we understand here is that genuine repentance in our hearts acknowledges sin without making excuses. Genuine repentance acknowledges sin without making excuses, and if I might add, without pointing fingers to the next guy. Genuine repentance steps into the light of God's Word, and it's, it's exposed to this truth. Repentance is willing to accept the full consequences of sin, which will ultimately and which should bring godly sorrow a sorrow that is aligned with how God sees our sin. When was the last time your heart was saddened over your sin? When was the last time God moved in your heart in such a way that you wept over your sin? When was the last time that you understood your battle against temptation to such a degree that you said, Lord, I want to fast. I, I want you to, to, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to bring victory over this temptation and this sin. And God, I'm going to give up food and I'm going to step into a fast that you might help me to understand the degree of sin, the weight of sin, in the same way that you understand sin. See, repentance brings about a bitterness in our hearts towards sin. Repentance brings about a bitterness in our hearts because the sin which we once used, that we used to find 
to taste sweet to our souls, there should now be a bitter taste. That through this bitterness, we would then confess and we would mourn over our sin. That we would be filled with sorrow because of our wicked ways. And let's just call it that, shall we? Right? We think of wicked ways of like decapitating your enemy and building pyramids out of it. But, but there's wickedness even in our allowing our eyes to linger too long to that image. There's a wickedness there. There's a wickedness in our, in our speech where we're speaking in ways about a person that, we, that, is not, that is not beneficial to them and we certainly would never say such things if they were around. There's a wickedness in that. And that we too would turn from that sin and that we would be sorrowful over it. And then this brings us here to the fifth observation, the result of change in repentance. The result of change in our repentance, right? We've gotten that repentance that God's word, right, brings about repentance, all right? It's through the power of God's word. Then we have the messenger that, that brings this message to us, and then God will use circumstances in our life and, and it's like that trifecta that all together comes together and, and we come to that point of repentance and we're filled with sorrow. And then ultimately, what do we do? We change. Repentance, um, the word repent actually simply means to turn around. It's a military term. It's a military term that describes a soldier who's marching in one direction who then makes an about face and begins to march in the other direction. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not a half-hearted turn. I'm only going to turn three-quarters of way around. It's not a, I'll, I'll turn around, but I'm going to keep glancing over my shoulder. It's a, it's a fixed change of direction. That's what repentance is. And this is what the king of Nineveh called for here in verse 8. Look there, it says, but let people and animals, there they are again, let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, and let everyone call urgently on God. And here's what he says. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. For the people of Nineveh, repentance meant turning from their evil ways and from the violence that was in their hands. And for us, repentance means to change our minds towards sin and to turn away from our sinful actions. To do the about face. To ask the Lord to allow that sin which we used to participate in to, to taste bitter toward our souls. And the result is a change. That's what repentance means. And this again, miracle of miracles, is what we see take place in the city of Nineveh. What is Jonah recorded as? In the great city of Nineveh. Powerful by human standards. But God brings them to their knees in repentance. And I think it's, it's also helpful. You notice that the, the king himself, there in verse 9, what does he say? He says, who knows? Did you catch that? <laughs> he says, who knows? 
God may yet relent. Like there was no certainty in the king's heart that even if they repent, even if their hearts are filled with sorrow, there was no certainty that God would withhold his judgment. There's no certainty there. But for us, believer, on this side of the cross, as we're able, as history records for us here, from Jonah's day, it all was pointing toward the cross. In our day, we look back to the cross. Believer, repentance for us has certainty. Repentance for us has hope in the mercy and the love of God. And that real, again, we are hopeful in repentance because of God's great mercy towards sinners. And so why should we hesitate? Why do we fear coming to the Lord? For the king, it hoped that God would relent and that the repentant people would not perish. In verse 10, we see God's great mercy. We see God's great mercy for sinners when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Oh, the king of Nineveh and the people were not completely confident that the Lord would turn from his judgment away from them. But we see that God honored Nineveh's repentance, that God ultimately, what did he honor? He honored their belief, right? You go back there in verse 5, the, the Ninevites believed God. I mean, that is a direct echo of there in Genesis where Abram believed God and it was counted to him as what? As righteousness. And so these people of Nineveh were not saved by their actions. They were saved through faith in the word of God that Jonah had brought to them and it was lived out in their repentance, in their turning away from sin. Church, I want us to know that we do not obligate God to forgive us when we repent, right? I mean, it's crazy, right? God is not obligated to forgive us, but yet in His mercy, He does. And when we repent, it appeals to God's mercy, a mercy that is dependent on God's justice being satisfied for each of us, right? We get a final notice like this in the mail, and we're thankful for a final notice like this, aren't we? Because I don't want my water shut off. What do I need to do? But if I were to, if I were to cry out for mercy from the water company, they would probably say, well, first, we'd like to set you up on a payment plan, right? There's, that's a bit of a merciful action, right? Or you can fill out an application, and from this budget line or from this foundation, you can seek assistance and someone else will pay for that. You notice that mercy always requires justice being served. See, when, when we cry out to God, for, and so why can we be confident in God's mercy? Because the justice for your sin has already been met in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin, the payment of your sin is what? Is death. For the wages of sin is death, but there's a gift of God that has been given to us. That Jesus Christ has taken on himself the payment that each and every one of us owe. 
And he did that there on the cross of Calvary. And that when we place our faith, when we, like the Ninevites, Ninevites, like Abraham, when we believe in God, when we turn and we believe in the payment that has been made for us there, mercy is then given to us. Why? Because justice has been served on Jesus Christ for you and for me. So church, this morning, I issue a notice to you if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ yourself. Maybe it's the final notice. I don't know God's plan for your life. Or maybe it's another notice in a long line of notices. But it's the notice, it's the same notice that Jonah issued, is that judgment is coming. And that judgment is coming for all of us. The question is, is have you believed in the one who has paid for that judgment? Jesus Christ. Because the notice says you owe a debt that, you can, that will take all of eternity in a real place a place called hell that the Bible tells us about, separated from the love of God, and that you will spend all of eternity paying a debt for your sin. And the notice that I want to encourage you is, yes, judgment is coming, but there's a hopeful mercy that you can be certain of today. That's through Jesus Christ. That when we join with the Ninevites and believe in God. That when we confess those sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this morning, my, I beg of you this morning to turn and to trust in the Lord. And to believe in Jesus Christ. Whether you're here this morning, whether you're watching now online, whether you're hearing this at some point in the future, that today would be the day of your salvation. And that for those of us, many in here who have believed, who have turned to Jesus Christ and have believed in Him, that we daily would be allowing God's Word to show and to to unveil for us the sin that we harbor and that we would turn from that sin, that we would understand that sin in the way with the same weight that God sees that sin, that we would be filled with sorrow for it and that we would do the about face and that we would change. Church, this is good news for those who will believe that we are hopeful in repentance because of God's great mercy towards sinners.